Hi, I'm James. And I'm Anthony. And this is Words and Numbers, presented by FEE, the Foundation for Economic Education. What's new and exciting in your world this week, Ant? Come on, disappoint me yet again. I begin this week with a shout out to one of our listeners, Anthony Rosso. Anthony and I haven't met, but I discovered recently that he's dating my goddaughter, Jill Klein. Jill is an economist, so we know right off that Anthony is both smart and has good taste. One of our other listeners, Glenn Miller, writes to say that he has made good use of an episode from two years ago where we gave students advice on how to behave when they get to college. Glenn thanks us for the episode and says that he had his daughter listen to it last week before she moved to Colorado State. With their daughter out of the house, Glenn and his wife are now touring the country full-time in their RV. He says that he's looking forward to checking in on the foolishness of the week wherever they roam. Glenn, best of luck to both of you, and tell your daughter that if she finds herself in an economics class and needing help, to send us a note at wordsandnumberspodcast at gmail.com. And that's the last time we'll mention that today. <laughs> also, in our inbox this week, listener Harriton Amerzinen asks what will happen when technology makes liquid democracy possible. Liquid democracy is a hybrid of a democracy wherein voters vote on laws and a republic wherein voters elect representatives who then vote on the laws. In a liquid democracy, a voter can choose to assign his vote to a representative or to cast the vote himself. Harriton goes on to hypothesize that combining liquid democracy with non-secret voting, wherein everyone can see how everyone else is voting, would allow a market in votes to emerge. Using an app, I could pay you to vote for laws that benefit me. That might sound horrible, except that it's not unlike the current system, wherein businesses spend money to influence legislation. Under Harriton's model, businesses would still spend money to influence legislation. They'd just be paying it to voters rather than to lobbyists. Harriton has done some informal polling and found that a majority of his respondents say they would use such a voting app if it existed, but a depressingly large number of people are of the opinion that many voters can't be trusted with such an app and that voters would pass all kinds of unfair laws. Imagine that. Interestingly, as I'm thinking about this, liquid democracy is similar to how stockholder votes are handled. A stockholder can vote directly or vote by proxy, wherein the voter assigns his vote to someone else. Whether that would work at the level of a government, I have no idea. It would not. And we can talk about that some other full episode, but not this week. This week, Ant, I want to talk about the post office. You've been hearing a lot about the post office in the last couple of weeks, and I have to admit, it's one of those arms of government that I pay almost no attention to. One of the interesting things is that the Constitution gives a positive grant to Congress to establish post offices and post roads, which we tend not to ever think about. Yeah, and let me insert here, because I've had a conversation on this topic recently with people on Words and Numbers Backstage. The phrasing in the Constitution authorizes the government. It does not require the government to establish a post office. That is absolutely correct. We can have it, but we don't have to have it. So it's in an interesting place. And for a very long time, the post office has said, this is directly from the post office, zero tax dollars used. And I want you to pay close attention to what follows. The Postal Service receives no tax dollars for operating expenses and relies on the sale of postage, products, and services to fund its operation. 
Can you see the big giant flaw here? What's glaring at me is I know the post office has been running deficits for pretty much the past decade. Yeah, and they're about to get $25 billion from Congress. So let's hold the phone here about no tax dollars. What they don't include in the list are things like their pension plan. Right. They say operating expenses. But what about all those non-operating expenses? All of those, those are covered by Uncle Sucker. Right. So everybody gets all worked up. We've got underpants and wads all over the place on this very issue. People saying the post office is necessary. They've been lying to us for decades. Well, it's worse than that because I've heard people say, well, requiring the post office to fully fund its pension is not fair to the post office. The fact of the matter is, since 1974, all companies in this country have been required to do that. So it's actually putting the post office on an even footing with private companies. Which, not surprisingly, they don't enjoy. Right. <laughs> Imagine that. Which, of course, Ant, brings us to the foolishness of the week. Every week I give you the opportunity to guess. As we come ever closer to the election, there's more and more foolishness. Oddly, for the time of year, given the election cycle, as you mentioned, I should probably be scouring the fruited plain for all kinds of examples of foolishness. But I'm going to take us to Germany instead. Our friends in Germany have decided they're going to have an experiment with a UBI, a universal basic income. Have you heard about this? Yep. Their gigantic experiment will include 120 Germans who receive a check every month for three years. 120. 120, about $1,400 a month. Can you spot the flaws here? Good God, they're testing out something on which they would base policy. If this were simply for an academic journal, that wouldn't be enough. Oh God, we would laugh them right out of the pages. And here's where it gets really funny. The study is going to compare those 120 with 1,380 people who did not receive the payments. And then they're going to figure out whether they should have a UBI for their entire country. Any word on how they selected the 120? They were volunteers. Oh, come on. That's ridiculous. They've got a, <laughs> a massively biased sample of merely 120 people. And there it is. So three years hence, we're going to hear a lot of nonsense from Germans about how we all need to have UBI because their experiment proved it works. But I'm here to tell you, in three years, when they say that, and they will, in three years, you and I will be somewhere saying, this is irrelevant, and here's why. This week, Steve Horwitz joins us. Steve is the Distinguished Professor of Free Enterprise and Director of the Institute for the Study of Political Economy in the Department of Economics in the Miller College of Business at Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana. He is also an affiliated senior scholar at the Mercatus Center in Arlington, Virginia, and a senior fellow at the Fraser Institute of Canada. Professor Horowitz is the author of four books, including most recently, Austrian Economics, An Introduction. He has written extensively on Hayek and Austrian economics, monetary theory and history, and American economic history, and is a frequent guest on radio and cable TV programs. Professor Horowitz is also a member of the Mont Pelerin Society. Steve, thank you for coming back to Words and Numbers. My pleasure. We had so much fun last time. We figured we'd do it we again. Did. We had a great time. Toward the end of the last episode, you mentioned that you were interested in talking about the Great Depression, and I jumped at that. I've been wanting to do an episode on the Great Depression for a long time. It's not my area of expertise, so I don't bring much to the table. So I was delighted that you would come back and talk about this. Ant is in a very polite way telling you that we're incompetent to talk about <laughs> this, 
So we're going to be leaning on you kind of. All right. I got to go into teacher mode then. Please do. So you're happy to start wherever you like, but I have an overriding question my mother keeps posing to me. Was FDR responsible for getting us out of the Great Depression? No. Next question. (laughs) (laughs) No, I will recommend to your listeners before I answer this question. George Selgin is doing a really terrific series of posts over at Cato Alt-M, the Cato Monetary blog, on the New Deal and the Great Depression. I think he's on part six or seven of a long series. And they're terrific. That's exactly the question he's sort of interested in, and it'll give you a much better answer than that. The thing about that question is we want to break apart the pieces. And I think the hardest part of that question is what do we mean by get us out of the Great Depression? That phrase, I think, is contested in a way that's part of the issue here. You can look at the data, and by the late 1930s, by 1939, we weren't in much better shape than we were in 1929 or 1930. Hours worked, we're still something like 22% down. Even FDR's people, like Morgenthau, the Secretary of the Treasury, said in a meeting, we've tried spending money, we've tried doing all these things, none of them have worked. Unemployment is exactly where it was 10 years ago. So if what one means by get us out of the Great Depression is did we get back to where we were before in 1929? Certainly not. Were we better in 1939, say, than we were in 32, 33 in the depths of thing? Yes, we were better. So in that sense of the term, the economy had recovered from the worst of the Great Depression. In between, of course, in 37, 38, we saw what's sometimes known as the recession within the Depression. That's an interesting story in and of itself. Did FDR get us out? No. And by 1940, 41, we have a whole other set of questions complicated by the war. Did FDR get us back to some semblance of normal? No. Did he do a bunch of things that probably made the Great Depression longer than it would have been otherwise? Yeah, I think you can make that argument pretty well. But he presided over a time in which GDP per capita was going up instead of down. But, you know, it's a long way up. Any discussion of the Great Depression, I think, should try to address three questions. What started it? What made it so deep? That is, why did it get so bad so quickly? What made it great? And then what made it a depression? What made it last so long? So there's three questions there. What started it? What made it so bad? What caused it to go so long? And then that, I think, is a useful way to think about what the issues are that one might want to talk about. The other way I frame it, and this being interesting to you guys, given some of the things I know that you do elsewise, is my foil for the talk is what I call the high school history version of the Great Depression, right? Which, you know, everyone nods. We know this version, right? right. Laissez-faire caused the crash. Herbert Hoover stood by and didn't do anything. FDR got us most of the way or part of the way out. And then World War II, of course, finished the job. And those are the four sort of pillars of the high school history version. I can do this in Canada, right? I did this recently in Canada. And I asked them, this is the U.S. story. How many of you heard this in high school? And three quarters of the hands go up, right? Right, so, right. And the one piece of the story that they pointed out that I think is true as well, the answer to the first question, not just that laissez-faire caused it, but that inequality caused it, that inequality was the root of this. And that lets people sort of say, aha, see what's happening now. So I think maybe that's a way to frame our conversation here is think about that version of the story and those three questions as how one might organize thinking about the Great Depression. It is interesting that you present it that way, right? Because that's exactly as I heard it, both at the dinner table at my house And in school, whenever anybody bothered to cover it, right? I went to public school. We often omitted certain things from history class. But the received wisdom that we have, generally speaking, is faulty. And I wonder how we even start to address that. 
when I do this, one of the last things I say at the beginning is, and especially if it's a group of kids with a little bit of econ background, this is always a good question. I say, like you think about that high school history story for a second, something is missing in that story that's really, really important to understanding the Great Depression that's not even mentioned in the high school history. And finally, someone hand goes up and say, oh, the Fed. My own high school history version of the Great Depression, no one talked about the Fed. And even today, I asked them, I said, how many of you heard anything about the Fed? And again, three quarters of the hands say, no, we never heard. To me, that's a really interesting point. Too. There's a great paper from about 1999. I want to say the guy's name is Miller, but I can't remember for sure, who looked at high school history textbooks and their coverage of the Great Depression and how bad it was. And when I have done my Great Depression seminar, when I did it at St. Lawrence for senior econ majors, that was the first thing we read. Why are these high school history textbooks so bad? What's missing from them? What do they cover? What don't they cover? To me, that's a fascinating story too. I think part of your answer, James, is two things. High school history textbook authors have no clue what the literature in economics says. It's been now 60 years almost since Friedman and Schwartz. It's just criminally negligent to talk about the Great Depression and not talk about, at least talk about the Fed. So there's no sense that there is like an understanding by economic historians of what happened here that they should be talking about, number one. Number two, it's hard. The monetary stuff in particular is hard. I think we maybe even talked about this the last time we were together. There's just so many high school level econ teachers who got drafted into it with no background. And so then to expect them to start talking about currency deposit ratios and bank failures is expecting a lot. But I think there's ways to do it. The fact they don't even mention it at all seems a problem. I think there's ways you can at least talk about the 30% drop in the money supply. Let's go back to the beginning. In your opinion, is the Fed the primary culprit? And if so, well, even if not so, what did the Fed do to contribute to the Great Depression? There are several people and institutions who share the blame here. Ranking them is, I think, a matter of judgment, but Fed's going to be number one or number two. Certainly the one thing everybody, I think, agrees on is the Fed's performance after the stock market crash from 29 to 32, 33 was abysmal. It failed in its main task and it allowed the money supply to drop by about 30%. And that was wrapped up in the failure of about a third of American banks. So that had a separate cause we can talk about. But certainly the shortage of money was part of that. And anytime you reduce the money supply that way and put that deflationary pressure on, you're gonna get at least some kind of recession, if not worse. And there were other things that made matters worse. But when people can't turn their productive assets, their human capital or otherwise, into spending power, literally because they can't get the money they need, I would hire you because you can produce value for me, but I literally can't pay you. And if I can't pay you, you can't spend. And the next guy. And the Fed was created to make the currency elastic in a way that prevented exactly these kinds of things. So when we think about the Fed, that piece of the puzzle is almost everyone now agrees that that was a problem. Why they allow that to happen is a much more interesting story we can talk about. The other piece is, what was the Fed's responsibility for the first question, for the why did we get a boom and a bust? That's more controversial. The Austrians have long argued that the 20s were a period of excessive credit expansion, excessive monetary expansion. You don't see it in the price level because it was also a time that productivity was rising. We had new electric appliances with all these things happening. So overall productivity was rising. That was pushing prices down at the same time excess credit was pushing them up. So you get a stable price level and people at the time thought, oh, price level stability is a good thing, right? Well, it was masking what was an underlying inflation, argued the Austrians. At some point that had to give. The false signals that was creating and the distortions in the capital structure had to give. 
I think there's some evidence for that. It's not as strong as, say, Murray Rothbard argues in his book on the Great Depression. That has been, I think, effectively criticized by others. But that doesn't completely let the Fed off the hook for what happened in the 20s. And it certainly doesn't mean that we can't also talk about what it did after the crash. One other small point, you know, the high school history version, right? Sometimes you hear it as the stock market crash caused the Great Depression or started the Great Depression. Well, unless you're a time traveler, no, because the NBER's measure of recession actually indicates the recession started in July of 29 and the stock market crash is October. And so a better way to think of it is the stock market crash was a symptom, right? was an effect of the turn and people revaluing all kinds of assets in light of what looked like it was going to be a recession. If we're disabusing people of commonly held assumptions, I'd at least like to get to Herbert Hoover for a moment, right? Because I could do the whole hour on that if you want. (laughs) Hoover was not a stand at the sideline and do nothing kind of guy. He was a thoroughgoing progressive, although he was a Republican progressive. That's correct. And people tend not to think about that. The common assertion that he just fiddled while the country burned down, not correct at all. Not. There's a great biography of him that's called something like Herbert Hoover progressive hero or something like that. I mean, people knew it at the time. When he was elected, it was a great promise. He had a reputation of being in government and being a brilliant engineer, which he was. And people thought it was an ideal. In fact, he was almost recruited to run on the Democratic ticket earlier. So yeah, he was an interventionist of the highest sort. The list of things that he did that were not laissez-faire is a long one. The one that doesn't get talked about enough, and I think is perhaps the most important. Everyone talks about the Smoot-Hawley tariff, which matters. And there's some interesting literature in economic history about just how much. There's a recent resurgence saying it matters. It mattered quite a bit. So Hoover had this theory, which was popular with economists and others at the time, that the way you prevented recessions, depressions, and unemployment was you had to keep spending up, consumer spending up, and you did that by keeping up purchasing power. So if you went into a downturn, you couldn't reduce nominal wages. You couldn't reduce what you were paying people because if you did, they wouldn't have enough to spend. And that would, I mean, it's kind of a proto-Keynesian story, but it was not as slick as the later Keynesian story. And it was held by a number of people at the time. And Hoover was a big believer in this. And he had argued this in the 20s as Secretary of Commerce and so on. Now he's president, right? He's got the chance to put this into practice. And one of the first things he does is call all these meetings of the industrial leaders and strong arm them. He doesn't pass a law, but he uses the bully pulpit to say to them, Don't cut wages. If you cut wages, this is going to get worse. Don't cut nominal wages. For reasons that I'm not sure about, but I have some guesses, they said, okay. And maybe they thought the alternative was going to be worse, whatever. They said, okay. So what you have happening here in the early 30s is you have the Fed deflating the price level. You have nominal wages either constant or just barely going down and productivity falling because you've got this depression. So real wages ought to be falling But in fact, they're rising (laughs) and productivity is falling. And so shock, we get unemployment shooting up like a rocket because can't make any profit paying workers the same nominal wages when prices are falling and productivity is falling. And so if you want to understand why unemployment shot up under Hoover, that's the best explanation is his high wage policy. And again, it's important. It wasn't enforced by law, but they bought into it. And it's great if you look at it after about a year, 18 months, industrial leaders start looking at each other going, wait a second, <laughs> what, you know, why, what, why, what? And they all start, it's like a cartel, right? The cartel collapses and some of them start cutting nominal wages and they start to cut. They still don't catch up. Even as they start to cut, they don't catch up to the combined effects of productivity and prices. But eventually by 33, 
it starts to turn around. Great book on this is Edder and Galloway's Out of Work, which is a history of unemployment in America. And their chapters on the Great Depression are just terrific and really laid this out with the data nice and clearly. If you think Austrian sympathetic folks can't do economic history with data and sort of straightforward, simple regressions, they'll show you you're wrong. To me, that's the big thing about Hoover that doesn't get talked about. Smoot Hawley gets talked about. The other quick thing is Hoover basically shut down immigration by executive order, interestingly enough. He passed a whole bunch of government spending plans that look an awful lot like the New Deal. And we can come back to that point too. Later in the 30s, including the largest peacetime tax increase in American history. And he runs deficits. FDR ran in 32, ran on a platform saying, Hoover's run too many deficits. We got to get the budget in balance. So the other fascinating question here is where does the myth of Hubert Hoover laissez-faire come from, right? I mean, some of it's Annie, right? I mean, that sort of picture of Hoover and Annie, but where does it come? I think I have an answer to that too, but that's a pernicious myth, sort of sub-myth, part of that high school history story. Where does that come from when the evidence, I mean, I heard Rachel Maddow talk about it a few years ago. And I was like, I was like thinking my PR people, get me on her damn show because <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't, I mean, the reality-based community and all that, you're not in it if that's what you think. So just to summarize your points, we get a recession. The government steps in and strong arms businesses, encouraging them not to drop wages. Simultaneously, the Federal Reserve is cutting the money supply, which is causing prices to fall. So you've got the businesses between a rock and a hard place where they are not paying their exactly. workers less, but they can't afford because the money's not coming in on the sales. And then... And I suppose this is what leads to the FDR as savior model. The government steps in and starts public works projects, hiring up these unemployed workers. And you've got a situation that's remarkably, in fact, disturbingly similar to what we have now. <laughs> the government that. breaks your leg yeah. and then steps in and says, oh, I'm going to help you by selling right. you crutches. crutches. That, yeah, thank you. And we're supposed to be thank you for the crutches, right? Yeah, right, that's, right. That's right. So one thing out of fairness to the history here, Hoover did put some public works programs. And it's interesting, too, if you look at economists before Keynes, right, the economists liked the public works program. Even the Chicago people thought the public works programs were a good idea. What Hoover, and Hoover has relief bills and all this, but not a lot of it was federal. What Hoover did was authorize money to the states and do it that way and decentralize the process in a way that I think that's part of the answer to why he was perceived as laissez-faire. It wasn't the federal government doing all of these things in all of those ways. But if you look at the relief program, in fact, Hoover ran for president in 32 saying, there's a great quote where he says, I'm like, we called forth the greatest economic counterattack in the history of the United States. We put all of the federal government to work to solve this problem. And he ran as an activist. And what's going on the rest of the world? Yeah. We talk about the United States going through his Great Depression. Presumably it hit the rest of the world. Did other major countries also suffer 10-year recessions? It was a problem everywhere. Nowhere was it really as bad as the United States. Nobody got hit with this kind of combination of monetary and banking mismanagement. There had to be ripple effects. And when we passed Mood Holly, everyone responded in turn by shutting down trade with us, right? So right. by raising their tariffs. And so you had this massive decline in international trade, which hurt not just us, but them too. When I did this talk for the Canadian students recently, that was a question. How is Canada? It was not as bad for some interesting reasons, but still everybody went through a depression. The U.S. experience was just a perfect storm of policy errors. One I should mention, I don't want to lose this one. The U.S. suffered, depending on how you measure and what time period, eight to 10,000 bank failures during the Great Depression, which is about a third of the U.S. banks. You happen to know how many bank failures there were in Canada over the same period? No. 
Zero. None. Zero. Wow. Wow. Zero. That's kind of interesting. Isn't it? Okay, so why? Yeah. It's a very straightforward answer. The U.S. has a long history that's now, thankfully, mostly in the past, of not allowing banks to operate branches, and certainly not across state lines. Even in some states, you couldn't operate. It was what we call unit banking. So you had all these mom and pop banks, right, that were completely undiversified. And frequently in agricultural states were just loaned up, had agricultural loans, all the assets out of their balance sheet. And so when problems strike, they have nowhere to draw from to get any help and no diversification. And so down they went. Canadian banks never had restrictions. They could always operate nationwide. So U.S. had this system of 25,000 small banks. The Canadian system was a handful, a dozen or so at the time, of large diversified banks. Banks shut down branches in Canada. You might have to go to the next town, but that's a small inconvenience compared to your bank losing your savings. So no bank failures in Canada, essentially. And there's one bank that had some problems in the 20s, but whether you count it or not is an interesting question. But essentially zero. And even if it's one, not a big deal. The, the losses to depositors were not, almost non-existent. So that's a part of the story here, too. It goes back to the high school history. Laissez-faire caused the Great Depression. Wait a minute, friends. We've talked about the Fed already. We've talked about the Hoover interventions. And we can't not talk about the laws, the regulations that made it hard for banks to diversify and made it much more likely that they would fail. So I'm guessing a lot of our listeners right now are scratching their heads thinking, all right, how did the received wisdom get so polluted before I received it? And my question is a simple one. How did we get the folklore of this sort of thing so dreadfully wrong? Because I remember I had never even heard of Herbert Hoover until I believe it was Ann Richards at a Democratic National Convention referring to George Herbert Hoover Bush. Remember this kind of thing? Yeah. How did we get it so backwards? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons. The biggest reason is it's the early 20th century. And even before this, capitalism was on the run. Markets were on the run, right? I mean, you had the Soviet experiment was happening. You had the third wave fascism in Italy and Germany, which was very intentionally, by the way, a model that might be a strong term, but certainly the same kind of thinking that went into parts of the New Deal, especially the early New Deal. So you had all of these things happening the progressive era was just over, that were all sort of markets don't work. We need planning of some sort. We need government to take this bigger role. We have science on our side. The economics profession, even before Keynes, right, again, was turning in these ways. And so I think there was this larger cultural thing there that when the crash happened and things went, it was capitalism's fault. Everyone said that. And the story about inequality, we can maybe talk about too. But everyone would say, wow, see what capitalism did, right? Because it fit their priors in some really important ways. I also think the other part of the story is FDR became a war hero. He led us into the righteous war against Hitler. And I think that people loved FDR and saw him as this sort of father figure and a wonderful, kind guy. He was an effective communicator. He made use of radio in ways that no one had before. So all of those things added together. But the truth about FDR is a lot more unsavory than that story. We can talk about that also. Because the question around my dinner table growing up, if you grew up in a Jewish household in the 1970s, FDR was a saint. As I got older and started really looking at Great Depression became a research interest and so really, really about FDR and his anti-Semitism and the one that people generally know about is he sent back the USS St. Louis to Germany. He was terrible 
on the Nazis. And it was only Morgenthau who finally convinced him, you got to do something. But the story people don't know about, and I didn't know about this till maybe 10 years ago, I wrote a piece for Freeman for Fee about this. And even growing up, going to Jewish religious school on Sunday, American Jews have no clue who the Schechter brothers were. Who were the Schechter brothers? The Schechter brothers were immigrant Jewish kosher butchers in the early 1930s. And they kept it kosher, which means there were certain rules about how the killed chickens were at issue here, how you killed chickens and how customers could pick them and so on. These rules, no pun intended, yes, pun intended, ran afoul of <laughs> the first new deal of the Agricultural Adjustment Act, which had these cartel rules about how you could sell chickens. And the Roosevelt administration decided to make an example of the Schechter brothers and mercilessly prosecuted them. And if you read the court case and everything else, the anti-Semitism, they were classic Jewish merchant middlemen. The whole thing was right there. And the Schechter brothers ended up going to jail, but the case went to the Supreme Court. And the case that overturned the Agricultural Adjustment Act on the 7-0 vote of the Supreme Court was Schechter Brothers Poultry. I mean, you guys are looking at me. I never heard this before. I never knew no. this before, right? Which is one thing. But the Schechter brothers ought to be the Jewish heroes, right? right? Who stood up for their religious beliefs in the face of the Roosevelt administration, for God's sake, right? But it's the reverse. I did a talk on the Schechter brothers at my synagogue in New York when I was living in New York. And that was a really interesting conversation with that group because they tend to be left to center folks, right? As the only non-economist in the virtual room, I will tell you that political scientists, at least political scientists with con law training, yes, do yes. know about this case. And it's known as the sick chicken. The case. sick chicken case. That's mm. right. Because that yeah. was the question. The kosher rules allowed customers to pick the chickens out of the coop that they wanted. It was important to the rule that the customer could do that. But the cartel rule said you had to just take whatever the seller gave you. So the butchers were losing their Jewish customers. No way we're going to go in there and take the chickens that they gave them. In fact, part of the process of how chickens were killed, according to kosher law, was to make sure that they weren't sick and they didn't have the tuberculosis infection. They were glot, which meant they were free of the tuberculosis thing that was the concern. So yeah, it's all bound up very deeply in kosher and kashrut in the laws of kosher. And it's just fascinating to me when progressive, when left-wing Jews hear this story, their heads explode. I'm just astounded. I knew some of the things that you listed out. I didn't know all of them, but it's as if we had a bunch of people in power who knew economics so well, they knew exactly what to do wrong oh, yes. to tank an economy. Yes. Well, I mean, if they had behaved randomly, things would have been better. Well, it's funny you put it that way, because that's my view of the progressives a couple of decades earlier and the labor market regulations. They knew minimum wage laws would shut out non-white workers. They just thought that was a good thing, not a bad thing, right? Right. And certainly Roosevelt's advisors, the Brains Trust, were completely part of this sort of third way idea. And this is another important point too. Nobody in the Roosevelt administration thought what they were doing in the New Deal was stimulus or sort of recovery in the way we think about it today, like macro policy. They were about reform. They thought capitalism was fundamentally flawed and they saw what they were doing was about a third way. It was imitating what they'd seen in Italy and Germany. And Mussolini and FDR were mutual fans of each other because they were doing the same kind of stuff. So this was a concerted effort to reconstruct the American economy. We today think of, even economists, right, think of the New Deal as being, well, that was macro policy. That was recovery policy. That was stimulus. Well, no, it really wasn't. You make that argument maybe a little bit later, but the first New Deal, all the stuff that went down that the Supreme Court overturned was not seen that way. It was, we're in power and we're going to reconstruct this economy so we don't have these kinds of capitalism-driven problems. 
I hadn't heard that argument before. That's fascinating. I always looked at it through the lens of an economist, but it's actually social engineering that's going on. Right. And all the folks around him were products of the progressive era and trained that way. And they got into power and got their chance to put their ideas into practice and they gave it a shot. The really other interesting questions here are the Supreme Court questions. Because those two cases, the AA and the NRA, go down 7 nothing on delegation of executive power. But then we get into the 30s and we get the stitch in time and we get the Caroline Broddick's case later on, which gives us this whole regime that now had drove Supreme Court for decades about why there were no limits to what Congress could do with in terms of economic regulation. And this all comes out of the New Deal and comes out of those cases in the mid-30s. Even the fascinating ones are the sort of switch on minimum wage. There was an early minimum wage case where they overturned a minimum wage law. And they are just crucial to understanding what happened later on and the way in which the court gave Congress power to regulate the economy as a sort of separate silo of stuff than it did for free speech, First Amendment, whatever, all these kinds of things. The history there to me is also fascinating. I've done a talk on the economic rights in the Constitution, and you spend most of your time talking about the New Deal, about the Great Depression. You've answered, I think, in some kind of very interesting en passant way, the original question I asked about how the received folklore is so faulty. And I think taking everything you just said, Let's look back then to the culture that the people who had these opinions, what was the water they were steeping in? They were steeping in progressive water from 1909 on, from Herb Crowley on, you really get this as the absolute capital T truth of the matter. Mm -hmm. And everybody in scare quotes understands this. So the only answers you'll ever get are progressive answers. And by the time you roll into the 40s and 50s and 60s, we have this sort of technocratic Keynesianism stuff happening that go back to Ant's sort of surprise at seeing the reform versus recovery thing. Economists are trained to think of it all as being about macro policy and because we're trained in that technocratic perception of the world. And so it can tell the Keynesian story. C fell, I fell, G's got to go up. Right. In the depression foxhole, everyone's a Keynesian, right? That's right. <laughs> That's right. And fast forward to 2020, well, and every don't forget to stop in 2007 along the way, because we get many of the right. same things happen. And now I'm really rolling. But let me roll one more thing. We can talk about 2020, but 2007, how many people said that the proper response to that crisis and the recession was to say, well, look what worked in the Great Depression. We got to spend. We got it. Right. So the story of the Great Depression still has this power. There's a great episode of The Cosby Show back in the 80s where his wife is in debate with an economist and they start talking about the Great Depression and she just lets rip with the high school history story of the Great Depression. It's just there. It's everywhere. But the 2020 observation I've got is a more basic one because no matter what the problem is now, government is the tool to fix it. Yeah, that's right. There's no place that the hand of government cannot reach. And I think it's directly related to this story. It persists despite the fact that the people who were alive in that era are not necessarily alive. It persists through the high school, through the culture, through the high school history textbooks, and through all of these sorts of things. Again, another interesting piece of the puzzle, of course, is that a lot of the early New Deal labor legislation was, again, recognized that it was going to harm people of color. And there was a substantial portion of the black community that opposed Roosevelt and the labor pieces of the puzzle. Roosevelt also tried to keep wages up to the NRA and all this. And they knew, nope, that's going to hurt us. And they were right, by the way. So there's that piece of the puzzle, too. And we have the story of Eleanor Roosevelt, who was much better on race than he was. 
The other story from Amity Schley's book is Roosevelt being asked after he took office, where should we set the price of gold, right? And Roosevelt says, well, $21. It's a lucky number. I mean, literally, right? Wow. And Roosevelt said, we're going to keep experimenting. And the other person whose work here is really important is Bob Higgs. Bob Higgs' work on the later New Deal and what Bob calls regime uncertainty and the role of regime uncertainty. One of the things, if you look at the 1930s, private sector investment falls off a cliff in 2930, and it never comes back. It just doesn't really come back until after the war. One of the problems here is if you look at GDP, GDP looks better by the wartime, but you can say, oh, we rescued GDP, but that doesn't mean you helped the private economy. You rescued this measurement tool that we have, but that's a different thing. And so Bob's argument, and it's supported by some great clever evidence, is that private investors did not know what the rules of the game were. The zigging and zagging of the Roosevelt administration was one problem, but the genuine threat to private property of nationalization and socialization and these sorts of things that Roosevelt represented led private investors to say, no, we're going to hold off here until either we get a different president or different advisors, or we have some notion that anything we put into the market, we're going to reap the benefits of it. They were genuinely afraid. And you can see that through survey data and you can see that through bond data that indicates how much the difference in returns on short-term long-term bonds. People were just petrified. That's an important piece of this puzzle too. Another part of the government failure story is that the policy regime was so uncertain that private investors just were spooked. We have to have you on for another episode now. See, you do this. You, right. you throw yeah. out these zingers at the end. We have to have I you know. on for another episode. Because even I, as an economist, you have now made me petrified of what's going on in 2020. I'm seeing in my mind politicians, even Fed policy to an extent, marching along the same paths that you described in the 1920s. Yes. And those dangers are real. But I do think the intellectual environment is better. There are not as many people who are hardcore as the Roosevelt administration and that brain trust work. They're out there and we see some of them are in Congress at the moment and some of them are professors running for president. But our side, right, has made progress in the intervening decades. Even if we can't get the story of the Great Depression right, there's enough counter push here that it would be harder. When the Great Recession started in 2007, my very first thought, and I think I blogged about this way back then, was the most important thing for classical liberals to do right now is to start the right narrative. One of the other problems back in the Great Depression was there was no internet to construct a counter narrative. None of the people who were seeing what we now understand to be the better version of the story had any cultural leverage to get that story out there, even to just get it out, much less have it have power. But that's not true anymore. The counter narrative to the Great Recession, the sort of story that it was a massive government failure, is much more commonly known and understood and out there in a way that is much better than the Great Depression. And I think we're seeing that also with where we are right now with COVID, the pushback against Cuomo as hero, right? It's a little bit more complicated when you're dealing with the virus and these sorts of things, and a new virus, I grant that. But certainly the, the lockdowns in retrospect, I think it's turned out to be a disaster economically. And it appears like they were probably a bad idea in terms of keeping the thing under control too. Steve, thanks for coming. This was the fastest hour of the last six months, <laughs> I gotta say. I gotta <laughs> say thanks for coming, dot, 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 again, dot, dot, dot. And we're gonna have to do it again yeah. real soon. Yeah. It's actually been a real pleasure the two times we've done it and I'm looking forward to the third. Thanks for coming. 
And that's all the time we've got this week on Words and Numbers. Be sure to join us next week when we say other things about other things. Until then, you can follow us on Twitter. You can join Words and Numbers backstage. You can even email Anthony if you want. Words and Numbers podcast at gmail.com. Will you never shut up <laughs> for, for crying out loud? Just be quiet. No more talking. <laughs> you forgot what you're going to say. Well, Send me lots I, of email. Yeah. I love the email. You're a f- you're a f- <laughs> idiot. <laughs> now I have to beep Fuck you me. out, James. <laughs> oh, yeah. Now I remember before I was so rudely interrupted with your foolishness. Thank you very much to the nice people who give us a little bit every month over on Patreon. It's actually starting to make a very big difference. Yes. Thank so you. thank you all. Thank you all very much. And we'll be by soon with some bonus content for you. And I'll see you next week. See you next week, James. James.